0: In this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm joined by Scoliosis Soph, aka Sophie Bizzano. Sophie is an incredible individual who has battled chronic back pain, a diagnosis of scoliosis, and multiple spinal fusions for literally half of her life. Despite all of the setbacks she's faced, she has continued to fight forward on her journey to living a healthy, active, and fit lifestyle. And as you'll learn today, she has amazing goals set for herself, and she is working very hard to achieve them. Her journey is very impressive and very inspirational, and I know that you're going to enjoy this podcast episode. Before we get into it, here's a quick word from one of our sponsors. Sophie, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited.
0: So for people who aren't familiar with your journey and your diagnosis of scoliosis and chronic pain and all these crazy things that you've had to deal with, could you kind of fill us in on where that started and where you're at now?
1: Yeah, so I was diagnosed with scoliosis when I was in middle school, kind of noticed some, some stiffness and tightness in my back, and then I was put into a back brace For about two years, I slept in a back brace Um, and that actually didn't work, didn't stop my spine from curving like the doctors had hoped. So I had my first spinal fusion in 2016 and that was supposed to stop my spine from curving anymore. Um, Basically, I was in immense amounts of pain after that. The doctors kind of couldn't tell me why. And they told me I wouldn't have pain for after six months. Two years later, I was still in chronic pain. After begging the doctors to look inward more at what was going on, they noticed that a screw had loosened in my fusion and it was touching on some nerves and actually formed a huge cavity around that screw touching on my spine. Um, so they went back in and did a second fusion and now I have four rods and 22 half inch long screws along my spine. Wow. So pretty much my entire spine is fused. And for those who don't know, that basically means that instead of being able to flex all of your individual vertebrae, um, your spine is kind of one bone. It's as if it was like another limb.
0: Interesting. So that means like it's all or nothing. So when you bend over like, everything goes or nothing goes. Right,
1: right. So if I'm laying on the floor, um, the only thing that I can pick up and bend is my neck. That's as far as that range of motion goes. If I bend, if I'm standing up and I try to bend over, my entire spine doesn't bend. My hips just kind of act as a hinge and that's the only thing that moves when I bend over.
0: Interesting. So have you noticed that you're like pain has completely gone away or has it shifted to other areas? Like do you ever get like sore, achy hips because they have to kind of pick up all that motion that your spine doesn't have now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I've been in a lot of different kinds of pain um, over the past, you know, eight years. When I, when I first was diagnosed, I just noticed a lot of stiffness in my back and kind of less range of motion, depending on which side the curve was on. And then after my second surgery, um, I, I noticed a lot more nerve damage. Um, so it got to the point eventually where if you even just, if i slipped something in my back pocket, it would just feel like I was being electrocuted in my hips. Um, So I have a lot of muscle and nerve damage, just just an array of different kinds of pain. But I think the most frustrating part is not being able to move. um, Because without movement, it's very hard for the body to heal. So
0: Right, right. So like all these things that people really take for granted, right? You know, just turning to the left, turning to the right, being able to look over your shoulder, like either your neck picks up all that motion. Or you have to completely turn yourself to see it, right? Because when we start to twist, our whole back starts to turn. And I'd imagine that probably has an impact on your like overhead reach uh, as well, right? Like reaching way up overhead. If I reach up high enough, my mid back starts to come into that. So if my mid back is like completely fused, I'm not going to get that extra movement. I need to get all the way up overhead.
1: Right. Yeah. So it affects a lot of different things. Um, One thing that I was never told um, and that I found it's really made difficult is actually my breathing patterns. Um, People don't realize that when you inhale and exhale and take a really deep breath to fill up um, the majority of your lungs, you know, your spine needs to flex to compensate for how your lungs are moving. And so I'm because I can't move those vertebrae or those muscles anymore, I'm not able to take as full and as deep breaths as I should be able to. So it it affects a lot of different things that, you know, I I was never warned about or people don't tell you. I mean, breathing patterns, the way I tie my shoes, the way I sleep, um, how I move, pretty much everything, the way I drive, you know, checking looking over my shoulder when I'm driving, pretty much just life in general has changed drastically.
0: So you mean that no one kind of told you the full picture of what life would be like post-fusion then?
1: Right, exactly.
0: Interesting. So if you were talking with someone who was, you know, saying your shoes six, seven years ago, and they have, you know, a spinal curvature that's considered abnormal and their doctors recommending a fusion, what would you recommend they kind of seek out and look into before going forth with that procedure? Like what advice would you have given to your past self? I guess I'll say.
1: Yeah. So I've had, I've had a quite a few people actually reach out, you know, on, on, t- give me TikTok comments or I'm always like, just DM me, you know, I'm always happy to talk to anybody um, just because I was never given this information when, I was in their shoes so the first thing I always ask them is um, the degree of their curve because usually it starts doctors start to get concerned about anything above 20 degrees if it's anything less than 20 degrees there is in my opinion no I'm not a doctor or a licensed medical professional but there's no need for a surgery a doctor should not be advising you to get a fusion if it's below a 20 degree curve um, that's because it can likely be fixed through a wearing a brace or through physical exercise. The second thing I always ask them is, do you have a morning stretch routine catered specifically to the curvature of your spine? So there's a lot of different movements, yoga, stretching exercise poses that you can do to stop and reverse the curvature of a spine. And the way that you stretch should depend on the angle of your curve. So my curve was shaped like an S. It was leaning especially towards, I believe, the left side. So I should have been doing exercises to strengthen the muscles on that side to cushion my spine more and to actually bring it back into alignment. But I never knew that. So I always recommend that people have a daily stretch routine that they do first thing when they, get, when they get up out of bed because you're most stiff in the morning from laying down the whole night. And the third thing I'd recommend is being an advocate for yourself and always asking your doctor more questions. If the doctor says that surgery is the only option, you should make the doctor prove why surgery is the only option. Because a lot of times doctors just want to send you in and have you treated as a patient and then send you on your way. And that's not really the case. There are so many more options that I wish that I explored and kind of fixed it through training rather than just getting the surgery.
0: Right. That's a great point. And It's going to vary a little bit based on what type of scoliosis someone is diagnosed with. So there's multiple different uh, types out there. Um, Congenital is the one that we think of when we think of like young children, like birth defect. It's a little bit more rare, um, but there's a lot of other issues that can develop from congenital. Uh, And then there's like idiopathic, which I believe is the most common. Uh, I think it's like 80, 90% of scoliosis cases are idiopathic, which is like, we have no idea what's causing this, but it starts between the ages of 10 and 20 most of the time. And from what you've described to me, I would assume yours is fairly idiopathic in nature. And and when we think about what causes scoliosis, um, again, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but one of the things that can cause uh, abnormal curvature, and you touched on it, is muscles on one side of the back are tighter than the other or weaker than the other. So we have one side that is stronger than the other. So stronger muscles are going to pull the spine towards that side. And the other side is not as strong, so it's going to have less of a pull on that side. So it gets a little confusing when you get into the jargon between tightness versus strength versus weakness, because someone will say something's tight, but maybe that tight side is stronger, maybe that tight side is weaker. Um, So there's a lot of different theories on spine stability and the whole muscle tightness, muscle weakness, muscle length thing. But in general, the way I look at it is you basically have some sort of imbalance on one side versus the other, and you need to try and even the two sides out. And that might help to reduce your scoliotic curvature, or at at least get it to the point where it's not problematic. Because, you know, I've been through PT school at this point and in pretty much any lab that we did hands-on stuff from, you know, anatomy where we're just kind of learning the bones and stuff to musculoskeletal stuff and palpation, everyone that goes down by my spine picks out that there's a rib hump underneath my right shoulder blade. And they're like, oh, you know, that must mean you have like an abnormal curvature. It must be like a, you know, S-shaped shape curve there something. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't give me problems because, you know, I've actively found a way to work through it. And even if there was something there, it's probably negligible, nothing compared to what you had. So there is definitely the possibility in some cases to find ways to manage it a little bit more conservatively. And I think the biggest key to uh, making that an option for people is catching this stuff early, right? So I think most schools at this point do that little, like the n- school nurse comes in, does the little spine curvature check. Yeah. It's yes. Not the, most, not the most reliable thing, but it's better. No, than-
1: it's it's definitely not the most reliable. Um, actually, I had that done and my nurse, my school nurse didn't notice anything. And then the week after I had a doctor's appointment, you know, just with my pediatrician and he actually noticed the curvature in my spine and we were, my mom and I were shocked because the school nurse had just checked for a week before. So I don't know.
0: (laughs) Part of it too, is they have so many people to go through and you've got one person doing it. Um, So that's where it's obviously essential to work in those follow-ups and second opinions and all that with your primary care provider, because more eyes on the same problem never hurt anything.
1: That's right. Absolutely.
0: And it seems like what really stands out to me about you now is you've been through all this, right? You've been through the spinal fusion, the spinal uh, surgeries. You've been through the chronic pain. You've got the nerve damage. And you recognize now that, yeah, it would have been nice to know all these things back, you know, a couple of years ago. And maybe we'd be in a different place right now. But that doesn't seem to deter you or stop you or hinder you whatsoever, It really seems like you've kind of used what's happened to you and made that your kind of future in a way, I'll say, because you're now online, inspiring other people, you're helping people who are in similar situations to what you've been, and you're absolutely crushing it in the health and fitness sense, which I can Mm -hmm. imagine is pretty rare for someone who's been through what you've been through. uh, Because when you've been through that much pain and that much like just surgical intervention, I'll say- it's probably not overly easy to get motivated to go to the gym and start squatting and deadlifting and doing pull-ups, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So can you walk us through a little bit about that? So where you're currently at when it comes to health and fitness?
1: Yeah. So I did ballet actually for 10 years um, when I was three to about 13. And then after I quit ballet, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. So everyone was a little bit shocked at the diagnosis because you know ballet is extremely focused on posture, form, you know. Um, and if I had continued with that, I probably would have the curve probably would have never formed to begin with. Um, but everything happens for a reason. So so after I was in the back brace and then had my first surgery, I knew right after my first surgery, I wanted to start working out again. I was always, I always loved to work out, but hated sports. Not a sports girl at all, but just the idea of lifting weights just intrigued me. So I'd work out at home, and then I was really disappointed when I needed to get a second surgery. And then after, the second surgery i started doing the insanity program the dvd program by shanti and working out like six days a week really a lot of cardio based, so lost a lot of fat um and my doctor told me you know you can't work out six days a week this is you can't do that and he told me i'd never be able to lift weights and i said well how long does it take to heal really he's like to be safe it's about two years so i waited two years and then started lifting weights at home, got into that, became absolutely obsessed with it, lost a lot of weight. And then I had followed this girl, um, Catherine Nash on Instagram for a while. And she really interested me because she had the same fusion that I had. And she has a training program. So then I joined her training program and that's what got me into the gym. And now I've been with her program for about eight months. And have a coach with her and now I work out and I lift five days a week and I have never been in such little pain for since I was first diagnosed. It's been incredible.
0: That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that you were able to kind of find a path forward uh, at a time when you faced a lot of uncertainty for lack of a better way to put it. I'm curious what do your workouts look like right now? Do you still do most of the uh, same exercises that you would expect anyone to do despite the spinal fusion?
1: Yeah. So, so I think the biggest thing that it affects is definitely um, leg days and ab training. Um, People are shocked at the way that I can form my abs um, because I obviously I, I can't flex them. There's no movement there. So I do a lot of like stability work with my abs, um, a lot of breathing exercises, a lot of work where I'm just lying flat on the ground and moving my legs to kind of work them. And then for leg days, I just actually texted my coach this week. I was like, let's just assume no lunges ever. So lunges are something that I found that it doesn't matter the variation, curtsy, elevated barbell, dumbbell, doesn't matter. Just my hips hate lunges. And I also can't um, do deadlifts. I used to deadlift and I used to love them just because it, it made me feel strong, you know, to move that amount of weight like that is it's impressive. Um, but it's just not worth the pain. So there's just a couple movements like that that my hips really don't like: lunges, deadlifts. I can't run long distance at all. I used to do cross-country. just not worth the damage that it does to your hips um but other than that it's pretty much the same honestly i feel like in a way it helps my form because in a lot of exercises you know they tell you don't arch your back hold your back in neutral and i can't arch my back at all so it actually it works out in some exercises
0: yeah for sure And I think it's important to throw in there, too, that I'm seeing a lot of people lately who take that cue, don't arch your back, don't arch your back, and they're going a little too far with it to the point where their spine is too straight, right? So we have kyphosis and scoliosis in our spine, and there should be, or yeah, kyphosis, scoliosis, geez, that was a brain fart. (laughs) We have (laughs) kyphosis and lordosis in our spine. So alternating curvatures, your normal spine should look like a nice S pattern. And what we're finding is when we tell people, you know, straighten your back, straighten your back, straighten your back over and over and over again, they go into these extreme lordotic, lordotic positions. Uh, so they're, over lordo- they're overcompensating for the movement with lordosis. When you do that, you're basically overextending your spine and putting a lot of forces on the spine joints itself, right? Right. So we say to avoid the flexion because that puts a lot of pressure on the spine discs, but extension is actually going to stress the joints. Uh, And if you look into like sports that, uh, like lacrosse, for example, that involve a lot of extension, right? Every shot you have to extend your back You end up seeing a lot of back pain and a lot of what we call spondylolisthesis and spondies, different kinds of fractures at different levels of the uh, spine. So it's very interesting how we use this cue, you know, keep your back straight, keep your back straight. And a lot of times, well, lately, in my experience, it seems like it does a little more harm than good in some cases. Obviously, we don't want anyone deadlifting with, you know, a whole like rounded back look like they're going to fold themselves in half. But we, we need to be careful with the cues that we use to people and make sure that we sweat the small stuff with these details, because if we don't get the form right and there's hundreds of pounds of weight involved, then our margin for error is very small before something goes wrong.
1: Right. I agree. That's why you, you have to take, you know, what all these fitness influencers online, they all give advice about form, especially like RDLs or deadlifts. I mean, they don't realize that the people watching don't realize that everybody's form is going to be so different. I mean, I have a long torso even longer now after my fusions and short legs. I mean, my RDL and my squat pattern is not going to look like those, all those fitness influencers on Instagram who have long legs and shorter torsos. I mean, my range of motion is going to be completely different and my form is going to be so different than, than what they're doing. So I mean, you just have to really know how to read your body. And that's why the mind to muscle connection is so important.
0: Yeah, I could not agree more. And in your case, you've been through a lot of different therapy approaches to help you improve that, right? I think you mentioned before that you've gone through cupping, dry needling, um, different like pain things, uh, yoga, meditation, it sounds like you've kind of, done the gamut of different holistic lifestyle interventions what have you noticed from those have they been helpful have they worked
1: yeah so I've tried pretty much everything under the sun for chronic pain you know all the creams like you said dry needling acupuncture cup therapy I used to see a medical massage therapist every week for about an hour Um, I've gone through physical therapy twice. I did aqua physical therapy. I've really, I've done it all. Um, The biggest thing that I think helps is stretching every morning, you know, getting yourself up. And because when you sleep for, you know, eight or nine hours in that one position, you're going to be stiff. Fusion, scoliosis or not, you wake up in the morning, you're stiff. So I think that that's the biggest thing that's helped me along with cup therapy. So cupping basically, there's a lot of different types of it. I use um, static cupping. So I have these plastic little suction cups and it comes like with a pump vacuum and you put them on different areas of your body where you feel extreme tightness and give the gun like three pumps. It creates a suction and basically what it does is it increases circulation by allowing airflow and to separate the muscles and increases the blood flow. So with more blood rushing to your muscles, they can heal faster, more oxygen, it decreases inflammation. So that I think has been a lifesaver. I do that about every two weeks. Um, Other than that, I didn't really find that physical therapy helped me that much. Physical therapy is great. I think it has its place. Um, And I loved my my therapists themselves, but I just think that the level of pain that I was in to only go there once a week and then have them give me a handful of exercises, it just didn't benefit me as much as I'd liked it to.
0: Right, right. So I'll break that up into two different points. First about the cupping, I cannot echo what you said more. Um, I've used cupping with my own patients. I used it on myself. Um, My family now owns multiple sets of uh, cups. And, you know, my mom will use it for headaches and different things. Like it's very effective and it's very easy to learn how to do cupping on yourself or on someone else. Um, Obviously, you should seek out a, uh, you know, provider who has experience with it, like a physical therapist or a Cairo or something like that, you know, don't just go to, you know, Joe down the street from you and get some cupping done because there's risks to it. Like anything, like I wouldn't cup someone who's got a blood clot in their leg. Like I wouldn't oh, cup directly over top that, you know, there's, there's always certain risks that you have to watch out for, but in general, it does seem to be very effective and it does help to reduce pain uh, through this thing we call the gate control theory. Uh, So essentially in your spine, in your nerves, uh, there's a few different uh, nerve pathways, A betas, A deltas, and C fibers. And the cupping works very similar to a TENS unit. It stimulates the A beta nerve fibers, which inhibits the A delta and C fibers. Well, A delta and C fibers transmit pain. So that's where we get the whole gate control concept from. If we turn this one on, it shuts the gate or closes the gate and prevents the transmission of pain. Uh, So it can be a very effective way to reduce someone's pain and discomfort very quickly. Uh, And it's also extremely effective if you pair it with stretching and mobility type stuff. So if you have like tight quads, if you put those cups all on your quads and start stretching them, you're going to get a very deep stretch. It might be a little painful at first, but it's going to be a huge stretch. And I, I notice a lot of people see a lot of benefit from that, even more so than just stretching alone in some cases. Second part to that is the PT aspect. And this is something we just recently talked uh, at length about with uh, Dr. Kelly Storett on the podcast from The Ready State. And we, we had a great discussion on where physical therapy is currently and where we need to go and there's a lot of good things about the physical therapy model, right? A lot of states allow direct access. So anyone can walk in off the street and see a physical therapy provider for a you know, period of time. Some states it's 30 days, other states it's 60. Other states have no limit. So you can treat that patient as long as you see medical necessity. But what physical therapy care looks like is different in each state. It's different in each kind of subdivision. It's different from one company to the next. And as a result, there's a lack of consistency. Uh, So Dr. Sturette was talking a lot about what uh, PT was like in California. In California, uh, grade five joint manipulation techniques cannot be performed by a physical therapist. Meanwhile, in other states like Arizona, they can. California doesn't have dry needling. Meanwhile, Arizona does. Uh, So there's a lot of these kind of differences that go into this central thing, this central field of medicine. Uh, that make each person's experience very different. And we were talking a lot about what would, you know, lead to a better future for physical therapy. And one of the things he pointed to is, you know, this is a field that understands human movement and human anatomy better than anyone else, because we spend years and years studying exercise science, biomechanics, anatomy through cadaver dissections. We do a lot of it. And as a result, we're in a great position to combine that knowledge of anatomy and movement with, you know, seeing people on the regularly for up to hour long sessions at times. So why don't we take advantage of that? We have so much time with our patients. We can see them pretty regularly for the most part, as long as we can show necessity and we can make a great impact on their ability to move. We can educate them on different factors impacting their movement, right? Like sleep, like nutrition, like stress all these different things that impact someone's overall movement. Because if we can't move normally, then what kind of life are we living? I can't even tell you how many people I've seen that don't even breathe normally, and we kind of have to breathe. So it's just interesting how we have this field that's so uniquely suited for change and impact on so many people's lives, but we just haven't quite figured out how to make the most of it yet in some cases, I'll say. And again, I say this as someone who's going into the field uh, right now, but I can always—I always like to look at, you know, what what could we do to improve our current situation? What could we do to make this better? And what could we do to make a more positive impact on other people instead of just settling for, you know, it's good enough.
1: Yeah, um, no, I definitely agree. I mean, I live in Connecticut, so I'm not really sure how my state laws differ from other other states physical therapy laws, but I think it's about you get like 30 sessions, which the state will cover for free. Um, and after that you have to pay out of pocket depending on your insurance. So it got to the point for me it just it really didn't make sense if I wasn't seeing a, a big improvement. But I think too the biggest thing with physical therapy is you know, you're only chances are you're gonna be going like one to two times a week. I usually went twice a week for an hour one like they call it like a land session because it was just like traditional physical therapy and then I had another session that week in the pool. Um, But the biggest thing is you have to be an advocate for yourself. You're the patient. If you, if they assign you exercises and you're supposed to do them every day at home and you're not doing them, then you might as well not go to your appointments too. <laughs> so.
0: so glad you said that. <laughs> oh man, That's, it, it's, it's tough to like make a permanent change in someone who you see one, two, at best three hours a week. Uh, when, you know, they spend all the rest of the time outside of those hours of the clinic walls. And it's very difficult to go about something like correcting posture, like increasing strength, when you only get one to three sessions uh, with someone per week, right? We know that at minimum, we need two sessions per week with someone in order to increase muscle strength. And we also know that a lot of PT clinics, not everyone, but a lot of them underload Uh, their patients, right? So they give basic cookie cutter exercise programs and exercise regimes that aren't necessarily customized and individualized to what that specific patient needs, or they're underloaded and they're extremely easy for the patient to do, and they're not really getting any benefit from it. Uh, And that's something that we just need to ask ourselves again, why are we allowing ourselves to give out, you know, cookie cutter advice to people, right? Why are we not pushing for more individualized options? Same thing with you and the spinal surgery, right? Why didn't someone look at your case and say, well, based on all these factors, here's the best thing for her. Now we need to talk to her and see what she wants to do about it instead of, well, she's got this, we're going to do this, and we're just going to tell it to her. You know, there, there was, there was a lot less dialogue in your case than there should have been in my opinion, from what I've understood of it.
1: Yes, I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I think that there should have been a bigger discussion, but also, I mean, the doctor gave, and I, I had a great doctor. I mean, he was like number one in the state for children's scoliosis, for treating like spinal fusions and spinal fusions and children's scoliosis. Um, but with the second surgery, you know, it was kind of a double-edged sword. I was given the option of, okay, we know that a screw is loosening in your spine, we know that your spine's starting to curve again. So we can either give you a second surgery, fuse more of your spine, and there's about an 80% chance that you won't be in pain anymore. Or there's a 20% chance that you will be in pain, or you can just not have the second surgery but you'll be in pain the rest of your life anyway. So, I mean, what do you do in that chance? You know, obviously you're going to have the surgery. So I I had the surgery. I took, I was hoping that I'd be in that 80% that wouldn't have pain. And no, (laughs) I had the surgery and I was in, I was just absolutely miserable. I was in so much more pain than I've ever been in, in, in my whole life. And, you know, people just don't realize the level of pain and the annoyance it can cause and the mental toll that it takes on you. I mean, when you wake up and you're just in pain 24 hours a day, it's a it's different. Like that is all that you think about. It changes every aspect of your life. So, I'm just I'm so glad that I could just prove the doctor wrong and finally say, no, I'm not taking the pain medication. No, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going to be in a brace anymore. I'm going to go lift weights and I'm going to make my pain go away. And that's what I did.
0: For sure. Um, That's a great point on the mental health and just overall mental aspect of pain. Uh, Because I just think back to yesterday when I had a headache that wouldn't go away, and I was freaking miserable. I can't imagine having something like that every single day for years and years. Uh, And chronic pain can have a drastic impact on someone's mental health, which ultimately will impact physical health. Uh, And there's even like some studies that suggest structural and functional changes in your brain occur as a result of being in pain for a prolonged period of time like your brain literally changes as a result of pain, which is wild to think about. Yeah. Outside outside of fitness, what have you done to kind of um, pour into yourself, I'll say, and better your own mental health throughout this journey?
1: So I've done a lot of meditation, a lot of like pain related and focused meditation. Um, I use the app Headspace, which I actually think is a great tool. Um, yoga is also really good because obviously that works your, your muscles, but it's also a very spiritual experience. Um, and I have been in therapy for it as well, like with a, with a licensed therapist, I'm actually planning on going back. Um, and I'm actually excited. You know, I, I used to think, um, therapy was very taboo and it was only for like mentally ill people, you know, there's kind of like a stigma around it, but I think that so many people should be so open about going towards therapy. I mean, therapy is not just for people who have mental illnesses or problems or think that they there's something wrong with them. I mean, you should go to therapy before things get worse and try to better yourself. So those are just three things that I think have really helped me.
0: For sure. I can't echo that point enough on preventative instead of reactive measures, because it seems like most of the American medical model, uh, again, there's pros and cons to every medical system, but a majority of ours is reactive instead of preventative. We do really well in the secondary and tertiary care realms, but our primary care preventative screening realm uh, is not always the best of the best. Uh, And again, it's great to have uh, very skilled secondary and tertiary care options, but you can't help but wonder what life would be like if we could somehow increase our primary care and our preventative health measures. I'm not sure what that would look like if it would be some kind of like government funded public health measures. It would just be, you know, educating people on their health and encouraging them to take charge of their lives and take charge of their health more. Um, but there, there's clearly a need to prevent problems before they get to a breaking point, uh, and prevent that downward spiral that we see far too often when it comes to disease.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is getting—you know—it's—it's it's definitely a larger, larger topic, and I could I could go on about this for yeah. hours. But I, I think that there's a major problem. I mean, that's a good idea in theory, but. The drug corporations are just far too large for that, for to ever allow that to happen. I mean, that's that's the real problem. That's probably why I was pushed to have the surgery. That's probably why I was put on muscle relaxers years after the surgery or, you know, nerve medication. And the nerve medication was actually an antidepressant. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that I wish that doctors would do differently. If you, That's why I always stress that you have to be an advocate for yourself. If you walk into a doctor's office with a problem and the first thing that they do is give you a bottle of pills or prescribe you a medication, that's not the answer. You should always try to fix something naturally without taking prescription medication beforehand. I mean, I was just in the doctors, a, a GI doctor a couple of months ago and you know, I, I had, stomach problems. And it was my second time seeing that doctor. And the first time she gave me, she, um, she diagnosed me with a peptic ulcer and she gave me medication to treat it without ever doing any imaging first. So I took the medication, didn't go away. Um, and then I went back and I said, look, I still have pain. And so uh, she did an endoscopy, found that I did not have a peptic ulcer gave me more medication to treat a different problem. I, and before taking it, I said, why are you giving me more medication if you haven't even figured out what the problem is yet? So I asked for a different type of imaging. I ended up getting an ultrasound and she found that I had premature gallstones, gallbladder polyps. And she recommended that I have my gallbladder removed. And I said, absolutely not. Um, And I actually healed my body naturally through taking supplements and changing my diet. And now I have no symptoms of gallstones whatsoever. So
0: yeah, there's definitely something to be said about the role of the pharmaceutical company in uh, modern healthcare. And that could be a whole episode in itself, uh, just going over the origins of modern pharmaceuticals and how things have evolved and changed over time. But I like to point to, plain and simple, uh, Dr. James DeNicola Antonio. A lot of people know him as like the salt guy, right? He wrote the book, uh, The Salt Fix, The Immunity Fix, uh, The Mineral Code. I think there was, uh, he, he wrote a whole different series of books on health. And he is a doctor of pharmaceuticals by trade. And yet he continuously puts out this same message in his books, on his social media, you name it. That if you have a primary care provider who will prescribe medication without first, you know, giving you lifestyle advice and mm-hmm. trying other alternative means to manage the problem, then you have a drug dealer, and not a doctor. Uh, again, that's stuff that he puts out. Uh, so it, it's just an interesting take on the problem uh, because it we, we see both sides to this, right? So yes, exercise can benefit health, heart health, for example, uh, and it can lower blood pressure. And there are medications that lower blood pressure for people. Uh, the, the question then becomes, what is it that the patient, what is it that the person wants? Do they want to you know, start reclaiming their life, regularly exercising, making healthy swaps in their diet and getting their health back under their own control? Or do they just want to take the pill and get a quick fix and be okay. And you know I know what I would choose, but a lot of people choose the other option. And that, be, that comes to a whole different topic of instant gratification versus delayed gratification and why people want things but don't want to work for them. Uh, but we won't go down that rabbit hole right now because I think that gets a little too far off the train.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs>
0: Uh, and it's interesting that we think about just those concepts of, you know, how other companies, I'll say, shape the care that we receive uh, from a medical perspective, and how we often, as a society look for the quickest solution, not necessarily the best solution. And I just can't help but think about those things as it pertains to everything we've been talking about today with scoliosis, health and fitness in general is that it's almost like a call for everyone, including myself, to kind of do a little internal audit and reality check with yourself, right? Like, what is it that I'm doing right now that I'm doing because it feels good in the moment, but it's not going to serve me the best long term, right? You know, so if I sit on my laptop after this and watch two hours of Netflix, you know, sure, it'll probably be enjoyable in the moment, but what, it, what else could I have used those two hours for? What else could I have been productive with. And that's not to say that everyone should go out and work themselves to death, but just kind of recognizing that sometimes in life, we need to look at the bigger picture and play the uh, more delayed gratification game, the game of, you know, this won't give me the results I want right now. It'll take a little while, but it'll be worth it when I get there, right? That's what health and fitness is built on. And that's what holistic health and alternative medicine is also built on, right? It's not a instant result. It's something a little bit more delayed, but you recognize that that delaying process is well worth the wait. Right,
1: right. It's all about consistency.
0: While we're talking about consistency, I'd love to bring up too, uh, what's your own kind of nutrition strategy or nutrition model? I know you like to post your uh, favorite foods on Instagram there different times.
1: Yeah, so when I first started working with my coach about eight months ago, I was eating in a very extreme deficit, um, about 1200 calories a day, and she put me on a reverse, and now I'm in a slight bulk, so now I eat, right now I'm at roughly 2800 calories a day. So it's pretty high for somebody my size um, and I track the macros as well. So I'm at very high protein. I have like over 150 grams of protein a day and very high carb because I find that personally my body digests carbs a lot easier than fat. Um, So high protein, high carb, and I'll pretty much eat anything that you know, can fit into my macros because I try to balance it a little bit. Um, you know, obviously get all of my protein from, you know, good whole healthy protein sources, chicken, turkey, beans, non-fat Greek yogurt. But I mean, if I need to have a protein bar or a bag of Quest chips or like Kodiak protein waffles, you know, I can supplement from there. Um, I used to be extremely rigorous with my diet before I had my coach, you know, going into working with her, I thought that I was going to, you know, not eat any sugar. I used to be completely sugar-free, gluten-free, did all the crazy diets, you know, all the fad diets. And then eventually it led to binging and my coach sat me down and she was like, you know, it's not worth it. I mean... It sounds, I used to read all these health books and be absolutely terrified of everything that I was putting into my body. If it came out of a package, I was scared of it. If it had preservatives or sugar, I was scared of it. But eventually I realized that although it may be doing my body good to eat raw, everything raw, everything you know, healthy, it was really weighing on me mentally. I mean, you can be the healthiest version physically that you can be, but if it's affecting your mental health, it's only worth it to a certain extent. So now I eat pretty much whatever I want as long as it's tracked and within macros and I have one cheat meal a week with like a family dinner night with my family. And yeah, hopefully I'll start cutting the spring.
0: Awesome. What's your favorite cheat meal?
1: Um, So my favorite dessert would be carrot cake. But Mm. then if I'm going out for like dinner, probably penne alla vodka.
0: Oh, I like the sounds of that. I um, Usually people give me like, oh, pizza or chicken wings or something like that. But that's a different one. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot.
1: Yep. I was raised Italian, so
0: (laughs) it's always going to be pasta. (laughs) Awesome. Sophie, what's on the horizon for you I'll say what's it what's uh, your next plan what's coming in the future and what's your i guess vision for yourself here as we roll through 2022 and beyond
1: yeah so i'm really hoping to compete this season um i'm training to be a figure competitor um hopefully it'll only take me you know the coach i'm starting to work with now he says should only take me about a year to get my pro card so that's very exciting um, And then, obviously, I really want to grow on social media. You know, my TikTok is doing pretty good right now, but I really want to grow on Instagram. Um, And I think the end goal would be I really want to be a coach, like an online coach, um, because the coach I have now has just helped me tremendously. She's changed my entire life. And I want to be able to do that for people and to really help them mentally and physically. I'd really specifically like to train people with disabilities because, you know, that's a very unique type of work. And I was always told I would never be able to do what I'm doing. And I just don't think that people should listen to that. If you think that you're capable of doing something, I want to help those people
0: succeed. There's definitely a need for that right now. You're hitting the nail right on the head there, Sophie. Uh, I also saw. You're uh, planning to graduate from Purdue next year in 2023, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's correct. So I'll graduate there with my um, bachelor's in business, focus in administration, Um, and then hopefully I'll have my training certificate as well a year after that.
0: And then you do a lot of virtual assistant work, I think, too now?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm I'm in, you know, I'm between jobs right now. So mostly focusing on training, Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about starting a virtual assistant company, um, but I'm waiting to hear back from a few other job opportunities before, you know, I really delve into that.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. Sophie, anything that you want to close out on, or you really want people to take home from your story, your journey and message?
1: Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I just really like to, to tell people is, you know, if you think that you can do something and something somebody is telling you that you can't or you've been through something i mean just go out and do it go get it i mean i look at where i was even just a year ago compared to who i am today and i am so proud of myself honestly that i've i've made such such big changes in my life so if there's something else that you want, don't let anybody tell you that, that you can't have it.
0: I love that message. Big fan of that. Where can people find out more about you, Sophie? Where can people find you on your TikTok channel and social media?
1: Yeah, so everything's the same. TikTok, Instagram, everything else. It's all at scoliosis.sof.
0: Love that. We'll link to that below. So if you didn't quite catch that, you can just click the link and find Sophie on all those amazing platforms. Sophie, it's been a pleasure having you on. Really appreciate your time for coming on and sharing your journey and your experiences throughout your past eight to 10 years living with scoliosis.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun.
0: That's gonna do it for this episode of the Braun Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe on your favorite platform, That way you don't miss any of our upcoming podcast episodes. Additionally, make sure you share this episode with a friend who you think would enjoy the content and episodes that we've been putting out. Make sure you follow us on social media at BraunBody to stay up to date on everything that we're currently doing. And last, we'd really appreciate it if you checked out the links below and supported the podcast so that way we can continue to help bring you awesome content and new episodes regularly. Thanks as always for your support.